Dieser Originals. Trailblazers. MJ Cole. Hello there, my name is Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most luminescent luminaries. In these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season and this episode sees Nick and I talk to Matt Cole, who you might know and hopefully love as MJ Cole. The very definition of Trailblazer is someone who shines a light for others to follow and this will become uh, abundantly clear that Matt embodies that headline perfectly, having single-handedly shaped a style of production that would be adopted by so many and go on to inform so many more. Trailblazers. Please welcome the producer, remixer, musician and DJ, a man who got the whole country dancing to his tunes and even people who say they don't like UK Garage all say, apart from MJ Cole. <laughs> MJ Cole, welcome to Trailblazers. How lovely to see you again. Nice to see you too. Thanks for having me. So it's traditional that I do the uh, the deserved intro and then Nick will fire a, a question before we kind of uh, chronologically go through your life, which I'm really looking forward to doing. So I'm now going to hand over to Nick. Good, good stuff. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for, for joining us. We, we appreciate it. Great Thanks. to have you here. Um, it's a general question from me to, to kick things off. You've been in the game a while. You've you've got some, had some great accolades and you've put out definitive music and, and you have new music, which is brilliant, I should add, that's forthcoming. Um, what are the, the sort of general lessons that you've, that you've learned through this journey about working in music and, and the business of music? Um, I think, you know... It, people kind of often say to me you're so lucky to be doing something you love and that is completely true uh, I can't imagine myself doing anything else a lot of people say that um, but in order to kind of continue through through the business and go through the undulations you need uh, a decent flow and a decent amount of um, tenacity and you know application yes. because yes. The, the, the highs are really great and then you can get dropped out the other side and really it's about kind of keeping that that momentum and staying true for me to your musical roots and your passion mm. for, for that thing that you know the reason that you're in this kind of game for so I'm constantly looking for um, different things to get me going musically and you know I've been listening to podcasts a lot recently funnily enough uh, about music you know listening to words about music um, I go to a lot of concerts I you know I seek um, inspiration in lots of different things in visual elements so you just need to keep creative and uh, keep moving, really, I think, to, to succeed in this game and to keep yourself interested. And, and are these the, the techniques that you use to lift yourself up when you find yourself in those kind of down phases that you'll, if you, if you find yourself, ah, oh, it's a bit slow, you know, I'm trying to get this record out and for one reason or the other, it's not coming together. Do you then consciously go, right, I need to get inspired again and you open yourself up to new stuff uh. yeah I think I have quite good discipline because I grew up playing the piano uh, and I you know I had to practice every day so throughout my childhood there was an element of discipline yeah. you know instilled in me you have to play the piano every day and I saw rewards from that so I think you know into my musical life I've tried to keep that going so if I'm not inspired to to write some great chords or a great beat or help with some lyrics or something I might just do something else in the studio I might say 
today I'm just going to make some mad sounds. Yeah. Just get one synth and just create a whole palette of sounds and create sample instruments. Or I might go and ride my bike somewhere, listen to a podcast. Or yeah. You just have to be kind of in the game. It's like fishing, you really. You do. I think you do. I've, there's various people I've spoken to that have, have said stuff along these lines. Niall Rogers, I think, was one who just said half the the game is just turning up just be there in, just be there in the studio be there with his you know with his guitar in his hand and try and do or, and with some good people around him and try and do some stuff now whether the magic happens or not you can't dictate yeah but like just do stuff and if the magic doesn't happen that's fine and maybe the magic will come tomorrow or the day mm. after but but if you're doing it you got a chance that the magic will come yeah. if you're not doing it uh, uh. yeah completely I, you know I liken it to fishing you yeah. know you have to be out in the boat with the fishing rod ready yes to catch the fish yes you know and uh, if you're not out there you're not going to catch a fish so yeah there's an element of discipline there and quite often when you work with other people as well you get like heavily inspired instantly by yeah. just something they do having another vibe in the room yeah. or just someone suggesting something uh, can get you going and once you've got that flow you're off absolutely flow. no great advice great advice yeah excellent oh well let's uh, let's <laughs> and, and, and take it yeah, and take it from the edge I actually I actually did that with MJ Cole looking at me <laughs> 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 that's, that's one of my that's one of my life goals that's uh, that's, that's ticked right you there you do it again so if you want <laughs> it was quite it was quite entertaining <laughs> <laughs> so let's take this one let's take it from the edge and uh, and ask you uh, let's take this chronologically so your sound the sound that broke through uh, with you in 1999, 2000. It, it defined the urban sound of the UK. So I'm guessing that your childhood must have been in an urban scenario. Are you a Londoner? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in West London, uh, of Twickenham's and Margaret's around there. But I wouldn't say I was heavily, you know, immersed in the urban world I was kind of um, I was a classical musician as a kid you know I started playing the piano when I was five a very musical household my dad's an actor and a singer so really it was piano to start with and then um, you know I fell into to, to garage music by mistake really I was essentially a drum and bass head I guess we'll get to yeah, all of this yeah yeah but yeah I, so. I, I think part of the reason that my music was slightly different um, was because I didn't really come from that world. It was my kind of warped view of what it should be like and getting it slightly wrong, but in my own way, that expanded it a little bit in my direction. Yeah, that's what that was what was what was fresh about it. But like you say, we'll we'll get to that. So let's start at the beginning with so you obviously had a very nurturing um, kind of musical environment. You say your dad was a was a singer a, a, and an actor, right? Yeah, and actor and a singer. He used to sing in uh, West End shows wow. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. that, what a nice um, hot house to, to be in. You know, I, I had the opposite. You know, I had my like my dad just would, didn't want me to be involved in anything to do with music. I thought it was a uh, you know should should be a hobby. And, yeah. and a we profession. had and we had an even more extreme version in in uh, Marianne Hobbs, didn't we? Where yeah. the, where 
music wasn't even allowed to be played in her, in her home when yeah. she grew up. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah can yeah. you believe? That must have been nice. Yeah, it was great. Um, there was always a piano in the house. My grandparents would always, you know, come round and sing around the piano. Um, and my dad played a lot. And I started from when I was about five messing around and annoyed them so much that they got me <laughs> piano lessons but it was yeah a very musical house and uh there was a lot of songs from the shows a lot of Sondheim um you know Cole Porter Gershwin uh, that kind of stuff going around just floating around the house really so I think I was brought up into quite uh, a warm musical environment and a lot of strong melodies um entering your ears in yeah early. certainly a lot of singing going on yeah, yeah. well that makes sense and so, so what was your what was your your awakening? I mean, that's nice to hear what what kind of helped to nurture you. But what was was there a tune that um, you thought, oh gosh, you know, that, that gave you a real sort of emotional reaction at, when you were young? Yeah, I mean, I guess before, before uh, streaming and be able to access everything in the world, it's really all about your parents' record collection, right? That's you know um, what there is in the house. So my dad had. Um, you know, collection, he wasn't like an avid vinyl collector, he just had a normal collection of music as anyone else does, but, um, you know, I remember he had a lot of Billy Joel, he seemed to be into, there were old Beatles records there, um, I first heard Stevie Wonder uh, through my dad's record collection, and then um, he had things like, you know, 10cc as well, and I first heard uh, Dreadlock Holiday, I think mm. it was, and <laughs> um, just, you know, pulled it out, I was just listening to different things, but um, that's one of the first records I, you know, I really kind of connected with, because it just sounded a bit different, I didn't really warm to the the Beatles stuff, but there was something about this um, 10cc record I liked, with the, the lilt of it, and the swing, um, yes. You know, I became, I still am a swing. Yeah, I am a swing addict. (laughs) You can tell through my music. Um, I'm not a big fan of regimented straight stuff. I love groove. I love swing. I love expression. Triplets. All those those (laughs) kind of things. So I reckon I found, began to find that in records like that. Yeah, that's Jamaican. You know, that, that that was a real sort of early... Um, a bit of Jamaican culture, you know, crossing over into into to rock music, wasn't it? Ten CC Dreadlock Holiday. I remember it being on top of the pops, and so do for, I. Yeah, for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was great. I mean, it was a reggae record, but we didn't kind of probably before I knew what reggae was. It was like you know, or reggae in influence. Yeah, this was pre Bob Marley breaking through, wasn't it? Like Bob Marley would have been in Jamaica doing his thing, but he wasn't. He wasn't. We need uh, Rodigan. We need Rodgers back here to, uh, <laughs> Come on, to, 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 to advise us. Well, he did us, you a good rewind. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did us a great wee, wee rewind actually when we had him on. Well, but, should we should uh-huh. we remind ourselves of this? Uh, Let's of do this it. Tune? I love right. this tune. Yeah, Trailblazers. I don't like Okay, so Dreadlock Holiday, uh, as chosen by MJ Cole, as the uh, as the awakening tune. 
before you you really got stuck in? You know, how did your teens go, and how how you know how involved in music? I guess you you were playing piano, and you had that regimented structure of of playing piano. And did you like buy records or like do that thing where you sort of save up your pocket money and buy seven inches? Were you kind of involved in that way? Yeah, I reckon I started um, buying records seven inches exactly as you say with pocket money. I think it was probably computer games I bought before uh, seven inches. But, you know, I used to have to go to Richmond and there'd be uh, our price, it was, in yeah. Richmond. Yeah. Everything lined up, you know, that basically it was all about the top 40, right? So you looked, you know, yes. there'd be number one there and everything else going on. So, yeah, I did, I did buy some seven inches. Not many. I wouldn't say I really got into massively buying vinyl until, like, later in my teenage years. Yeah. But at the beginning, I remember buying... I remember buying David Bowie Let's Dance from Kensington Market. Yeah. A uh, seven inch of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember buying... I must, I must have been about, I don't know, 11 or 12, Relax by, you know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, things Produced, like this. Produced, of course, but by... Our last guest, Trevor There you Hall. go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's an amazing sounding record. It um, is. So, yeah, I was buying a few things like that, but really I was, I reckon, up to about 11, 12, 13... I was playing the piano, I played the oboe as well. I was doing music competitions, um, just practicing a lot uh, and really enjoying it, really getting into music, really getting into performance uh, and playing loads of different pieces and, you know, just having a nice life, really. And this was the 80s? Yeah, it would have been, I was born in 73, so yeah, I was, you know, 10 in 83. Yeah. And then was there, um, was there a track that... We asked this for everybody. Was there a track that kind of made you think, you know what, I want to do this. Like, I, I fancy I could do this. Or was there a track that kind of made you think, I want to, you know, was there an awakening point where you thought you could or wanted to be a musician? Or a producer or whatever, you know. Yeah, I mean, I listened to things like I got into... When I started making music at home, uh, it was things like James Brown that I got into like so when I was sampling. But before that, um, some of the seven inches, I, bought, I think... I bought one, you know, Alison Moyet all cried out, which is mm. kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's sort of a guilty pleasure of mine, but I yeah. loved that record when that came out and I played it a lot and there's something about, um, it's not the sentiment of the song, it's something to do with the mood of the production and the harmony and the chord changes with this kind of very soulful vocal that just did, did something for me and, I, you know, I still love that record to today. Mm. Um, but that would have been... I guess early eighties or something that that yeah, record came out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was that produced by Vince Clark? I don't after know. He'd, after he left Depeche Mode, I gosh, I, I, I we should have to, we should ask another I, former I, I, Trailblazers I, guest. Yeah, yeah, I, Daniel I, Miller. I just saw the ta I saw the last song that she did. She played with. She supported Tears for Fears last week. I saw right. her at the wow. O2. Yeah, really? yeah, yeah, yeah. She was. Uh, you know, she's touring with them right now. Um, you know, obviously, don't go was the was the you know the big one at the end. Yeah, but um, um, but should we listen? Should we listen to that record? I haven't heard it for a while, but yeah. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good record. Should we give it a spin? Yeah, yeah, let's. Trailblazers, MJ Cole. Surprised there was no day. 
So Alison Moye, MJ Cole's emotional awakening. Yeah. Um, what happened with your education? You you went? Did you go to university from school? Did you and did you study music? Was that a, was that a thing for you? Yeah. While I was at secondary school, I went to the uh, Royal College of Music Junior Department. So I used to go every Saturday and just a whole day of music. So I did six day weeks really as a kid. It's pretty hardcore when I was a kid. So Sounds it'd like it'd be it, nice yeah. to have a bit of a rest. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I used to go to music college from uh, eleven to eighteen, and uh, I did. A lot of music at school as well um and then yeah i left school and did a music degree basically right yeah yeah and i ended up going to um the city university in london which funnily enough is just down the road from my studio now it's very odd i've just ended up in this very small area um so i went there and i did an amazing music degree that was a very unlike any music i'd done before i kind of got into uh making music on my Atari like everyone else and samplers in my bedroom and I just knew that that's the direction I wanted to go in uh, and so this music degree at City University was very scientific we did uh, learn all about synths like psychology of music they had an amazing studio that was opened by Peter Gabriel we had guys from the BBC coming to teach like sound recording a guy from Radio 3 coming so, so that was really when I realised that yeah I can totally get into this and I was doing people's mix downs for them in the studio like hiding in the, the, the building overnight so I could use the studio all night I was doing um, all these weird electroacoustic composition things I got right into it and I got into I started playing in bands there which was a very new thing for me there was like this classical musician I was great at playing all these pieces of music but if you asked me to jam along to something I wouldn't have a clue so the guys had to put up with me sort of learning <laughs> to play along in bands I was in a soul covers band called Slim Jim and the Octave Doctors. <laughs> but I learned so much at those times. It was really amazing. I mean, now I'm, I'm, I'm a good... Uh keys player I can kind of listen to stuff and work it out and I can improvise and I know a lot more about chords but it really started there and that was my studio awakening as well Happy, you know suddenly having access to all these studios sound recording and mixing desks and compressors and sound sources so you know it kind of went really well from there I, I don't know whether any of our previous artist guests have have studied music in to the in the the depth that that you have I don't think Matt. so no. that's yeah. quite interesting because obviously some artists will say you know to be successful as an artist no you don't need to do all of that traditional study you know you just you know just do your thing if you've got a talent it's a talent but interestingly it sounds like all of that was really helpful in shaping your ability to apply yourself to yeah, I think it was and it wasn't. I think I would have done that anyway. And I wouldn't say I necessarily learned specific studio skills at college. I was sort of into it anyway. I, I had a thirst for all that. And it just happened to be, it just became a playground for me, basically. Yeah. It had everything that I wanted to play with. Yeah. Um, at school, my music education was very old school, very dusty, very yes. boring. But you managed when you were, went to, to study at post school to, to do interest in creative stuff rather than go further down the dusty yeah, road I, of academia. I actually started at a different university that I thought looked better on paper 
and I left there after a term and transferred to this other place because it was too dusty. It was all, <laughs> yeah. you know, Bart Corrals and Haydn Quartets mm-hmm. and blah, 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 which is cool, but I just felt I'd done that. And I was about, I've always been about the future and new stuff and technology yeah. and making new music. Um, and really, you know, I got into going out um, to clubs probably in when I was about 15 which would have been 1988 so it's a pretty good time to be born you know <laughs> it's a good I, year yeah so <laughs> I, I started probably clubbing in yeah about 88 nice and then you know when like 1990 hit early 90s I was uh, you know heavily into it and really it's mad because the you know the first music that I got it was it was a mishmash then I used to go to um, you know Greek street um, um, and buy records from there, and it would be Groove, yeah, perhaps what was Tracks as well, maybe, yeah, Groove, what was yeah, it? something Groove. Can't well, remember now. Well, those Groove records was That's on the it. corner. Yeah. yeah, Groove Records. And I've actually got the uh, the decks. When Groove Records closed down, they had a pair of Technics mm. 1200s. And because my uh, boss at the time in the in the, the sort of XL CB equation, Tim Palmer, also owned Groove Records, he gave me the the decks that, wow. that used to live in uh, Groove Records. Wow. And they're, they're at, at home now. And <laughs> so so yeah, they've, seen, they've seen some uh, good... I definitely bought records good... that have been played on those decks. There you go. And they'll still... <laughs> Still be at home. My record collection. What a yes, connection! Buddy. What yes. a connection! You know, it was a mishmash. Then I remember buying like, you know, there was no. I I got into drum and bass and jungle when it actually became that. But before it was mad. It was like hip house. There were bits of like UK hip hop in there, like SL Troopers. I was buying. I was buying like. Uh, Tony Scott, like hip house records. I was buying, um, you know, Masters of the Universe, kind of piano house, Italo house things. Some things were like four to the floor, other ones were breakbeat. When I look at the beginning of my collection, it was a total mishmash, but it was great because there were no rules then. There was no real, there was no, you know, drum and bass or jungle or anything. You yeah, just no. kind of cottoned on to these different things. Yes. And, you know, that really led on to me uh, loving the beginnings of jungle and drum and bass that's the, that's the direction that I went into when I was going out to clubs right, so I wasn't before, in the house room yeah. garage room I wasn't interested at all I was in the other room yeah, in the, yeah, you know, me, in the drum too. and bass room <laughs> yeah, yeah me too and, and, um, but before that so what, what would have been your, your kind of your, your nightclub awakening tune what, what would that one be um, I mean, you know, I'm in here company with Nick. It has to be the first uh, Prodigy EP. Right. And especially Android from there, because I think I saw um, Liam perform that at Fun City that was at Busby's in Charing Cross Road. Yeah. It used to be next to... Um, uh, it's all been knocked down Near now. Near to the Astoria, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It a few, you know, like a short walk from the Astoria, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think they had a secret tunnel under between the two, I heard, as well. So you could go to Orange at the Astoria afterwards. Ah. But I, think, <laughs> I didn't, I was never privy to the, to the secret tunnel, yeah, unfortunately. It might be an urban myth. Yeah, it, it could be. <laughs> You'll never know now because yeah, it's all too crossroads. Late, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's a fucking big tunnel going through it at yeah. the moment, yeah. But it would, I, I saw that, I saw Liam perform that at, um, on a Friday night at Fun City 
City, um, and that was one of one of the first collection, first records I bought. I think when I got Dex, yes. I actually started to become a Technics, you know, bedroom DJ and annoy everyone in my road. But <laughs> I, st- you know, I still have that record now. And Android uh, was always my favourite record off there. Oh, brilliant! So man. really, that 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 record is synonymous with my time of going out as a teenager, going to um, Fun City at Busby's in Charing Cross Road. And I guess, I don't know when that came out. Maybe it was 1990 or I think it was, yeah. Because that like was that. that was the very first one. So um, that was, it was great that you, and did you buy that record at yeah. the time? Yeah. Because yeah, it yeah. didn't really sell that many in the big picture. Of right. it. I, I seem to recall that we, that we did... You know, in the end, maybe like six, seven thousand twelve inches on that, which you know, actually, in those days, wasn't wasn't like a big number because then you know you had big big records doing twenty thousand and twenty, you know, like all sorts of crazy stuff. So obviously, you were onto you were onto it before the Prodigy (laughs) became what they became, and and at that point, yeah, it was still that record was an underground record. It was played on the pirates. It was played in the clubs. The tracks off that EP, but this was before the Prodigy broke. So yeah. uh, nice one. I'm glad you. I'm glad you got into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what a pleasure to be able to drop this one. Yeah, Trailblazers. <laughs> Early Prodigy. What a tune. It's just great. It must be great to relive that for you. But I want to just rewind a little bit and to talk about just, I guess, the tail end of of your... um uh, you're building the blocks of your career, you know, at at um, doing your music degree, and and that you recognise. Or at what point did you did you come to that fork in the road and think I want to be a producer more than a front man, or I want to be rather than the focal point in the band, I want to be the guy that's actually making the record. I mean, I think I always uh, I've always loved technology and music, and I, I remember there being a stage being at home. And obviously, my my dad had the the cassette recorder. He had the FM tuner, separate system. I can see it now. It's mad the <laughs> things you remember. Yeah. Um, but it was like a you know a silver thing. It had these push buttons, and you had to push the cassette in. And it had like a little kind of perspex flap that came down with two you know recording. Um, uh, levels, you know, left and right, and there's like a Dolby B button and an NR button, and you know, the, these three digit black and white counters that I reckon so many of us spent so many, so much time looking at, right? These little counters, resetting it, doing tapes. Like, basically, I was recording stuff off the radio, but I remember there being a time, uh, at one moment when I was just like, I love audio because it's so. Um, pure and it's so simple and in a way it's just one thing it's one sense and I knew there was TV around and film and to me that was like a little bit too complicated I loved the fact that audio was just stuff that went in your ears and it just did this <laughs> mad thing to you as a human yeah. Yeah. I remember looking at those um, hi-fi separates and just thinking 
I love audio. It's what I want to do. And, um, you know, really, I, I started to get into computers. I think I had a VIC 20 to start with. Then I had a Commodore 64. And as soon as I got into playing on the Commodore 64, programming basic, like everyone else does, 10 print, whatever, you know, go to 10, like do sheets of stuff, get computer magazines with these 12 page programs you had to type in. And if you had got one single thing wrong, the program would <laughs> run I remember I didn't even have one of the uh, cassettes to record anything on to save any data so once you turn the computer off all your 12 pages of basic stuff from the thing are gone Um, but really that's where I started making computer music I I worked out how to use these poke commands on the Commodore 64 just to make basic tones and then really my mate uh, Matt that I went to music college with he was really into computers and he had an Amiga and he introduced me to this program called Octalyzer um, that was basically a sample based program um, and he he was into his kind of rare groove and funk and stuff like that so basically we just started sampling uh, bits of James Brown you know some of these uh, drum grooves and rare groove stuff uh, and sticking it in the Octalyzer program and I remember we had, we had, he'd bring his computer around to my house. We'd have two computers, a DJ mixer, and we basically have different samples lined up in each computer and then hit the space bars at the same time, <laughs> like manually. And then we'd have a crossfader. So you could, you know, run one and then you slip it onto another sample on the other side. And then we just, you know, ran cassettes. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Raw. So th- that, that was the beginning of me ah, making, like making records, wow. basically. Great. And then that moved on to getting an Atari and then you know I think we clubbed together and bought a sampler together and we were going out to you know all these kind of mad raves and stuff and trying to recreate what we'd heard out there so that's when it began when I was probably 15 16 and I was staying up till three in the morning with headphones on making tunes on my Atari and then going all the way into school very tired but just spending the whole day with my Sony Walkman on (laughs) listening to these cassettes of stuff I'd done the night before and that's what really Really, that was the moment where I'm just like, yeah, you know, this is definitely if if I can get away with um, having so much fun doing what I'm doing now, that's that's a result. You really, that's you really are in the yeah. right job, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk about how you then slid into the business because I have this hazy memory of being in this West London breakbeat label um, in the mid-90s that I really loved called Frescanova. And didn't you, like, used to hang out there? Was, or is, am I inventing that memory? I don't think so. Where was that? Where I, was like, that? I just remember, like, that label that the Freestylers and all of those guys were on. Sort of Grand Union Centre-ish? Yeah, it was like, no, it was, um, I, guess, it was I think, like, near Ledbury Road or somewhere. It was off Portobello Road. I've got this hazy so. memory of you being this quiet young man in a baseball cap in that office. No, I I don't, might have just, no that wouldn't have been me. I, might I, be I, wishful thinking. I don't get on with baseball caps. <laughs> <laughs> I never have done. Well, maybe, maybe. But no, I don't think I, I, don't think I was there. Um... Yeah, I would have been in my bedroom with my time. So, 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 hang on. So, our connection, first connection, would have been Vince, would have been Vinnie Medley, wouldn't it? Would have been like Sound of the Underground, and, yeah, and and UK Apache and Shy FX and, yeah. and all of that, all of those guys. Yeah, that's how I first got into the whole studio record game, really. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that's how I got into dance music. Was was mm. Liam mm. and Goldie mm. and and those guys. Mm. And actually, that's the last place that I remember seeing you. Or maybe I guess the first place that I met you would have been at Vinnie's funeral. Would, would 
wouldn't it have been? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I was with those guys for for quite a while. I mean, I left I left college and, um, you know, just knew I wanted to be in, in music. So I did the thing of, you know, doing a, a CV and then looked around. It's like, I, I, then I really wanted to be a record producer via being an engineer in a very old school way. So I wanted to go and be a tape op, make teas for people, um, work my way up to engineering and then had this idea of becoming a, as I call it, leather trousers producer, you know, <laughs> like in Abbey Road Jones. or, you know, Psalm or yeah. one of these kind of Air Linters, one of these places. Um, so I'd, I'd done this CV and I applied. I was quite studious about it. Applied to all these different um, studios. And I remember getting offered a job at Air Lindhurst as a, as a runner um, and also getting offered, I think, a night reception at Metropolis Studios in Chiswick. Mm. But then I also applied to Sour of the Underground um, I think I just sort of cold called all these people, but they're like, yeah, we'll offer you a job as well. So that there, there was a point in my career where I could have gone the leather trousers route. Yeah. Um, <laughs> gone off to Air Lindhurst, yeah. fruit bowls, sushi, all that business. So you didn't do, you didn't do Air Lindhurst? <laughs> no, I decided to go to Sour. Oh, because, that's where, we're, that's the yeah. office that I, that I, yeah, that I remember that would have been like cap. 1995 yeah. or something, maybe yeah. early 96. Yeah, I remember, I remember meeting you as a young man in a, in a record yeah, label. That, it yeah, would have yeah, been that. That, that yeah, would yeah. have been right, yeah. And it was in Strutton Ground in Victoria, just yeah. down from uh, Trident 2. Um, so yeah, that's, I decided to to do that and then you know I loved it there because I was into drum and bass and they, they just had like a, a storeroom full of all these records and and uh, Norton and Dave Stone that I worked for there they were like yeah just you know you could have one of these one of these one of these and I was like this is amazing I'm getting like free vinyl um, and I was I think it was only 50 quid a week my travel card was like 25 30 quid a week so I was like living on 20 pounds a week but I just didn't care I was at home um but I got, you know, I got into stu- I got into the studio a lot quicker that route than I would have the other way. I was making teas and doing errands, picking up new tweeters for NS10s and fixing stuff. Um, and but I, I ended up in the studio very quickly there. And then people worked out that I could play, and um, that was a bonus in the studio. So so within I don't know a few months, I was kind of playing on records, and then they kind of worked out that I could, you know. Play program as well so I ended up programming for people and engineering for people very quickly what sort of artists were you working with and and playing some keys on I was working with I mean that's where I met Elizabeth Troy Uh um, and she was working with um, uh, a guy called Jim Raw Deal she was doing a lot of kind of R&B every Wednesday it used to be Um, he'd come in really great guy Jim and he'd it was kind of hip-hop style beats he'd knock up mm. um, start from scratch I'd engineer the whole thing Elizabeth would roll in um, and write a song on the spot and we'd be there till probably two in the morning but that that was the beginning uh, of me engineering and then I started to play keys on bits of those records because ah. uh, Jim wasn't really a player sure um, so I started playing rec- you know keys on those kind of records uh, and then it just went from there really I started doing my own stuff at home bring it into that studio at night to mix they moved studios to somewhere um, in Dalston in Kingston Road had a studio there and I became a lot more involved just mm. kind of engineering for different people and that's when the garage thing started in that right, studio cause was, yes because it was just starting to bubble yeah you know because it was all it was all about the breakbeats for me in those days and then and and, and jungle and, and stuff and then 
and then suddenly, like, just it just came out. It seemed to come out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, where UK garage and speed garage. Well, speed. Yeah, they, well, they call it you know, speed garage. Was seemed to be, in my mind to be like more uh, international, like. Yeah, uh, more kind of Dutch vibe. Yeah, yeah, or, or, or you know what Armin van Helden was doing. Yeah, um, yeah. So that 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 happened by mistake, really. I was just I was the guy in the studio, the engineer, and some of the guys to do with that studio had a had a pirate station, and all the DJs from that station they just said, you know, why don't we get our DJs to come and make some records? And so I was the guy who made that happen, basically. But it was incredible. It was, you know, looking back on it, it was. Um it was amazingly influential for me. Like I said at the beginning, um, I didn't really know anything about garage music. I didn't have a, a collection of US garage records going back. I wasn't really interested in that. I had a stack of like 3,000, you know, hardcore and drum and bass jungle <laughs> yeah. records, basically. Yeah. That was me. Yeah. And, and I'd gone to Sour because they made drum and bass. And to be honest, the drum and bass that I was making wasn't any good. It really wasn't. Um, it was too musical. It was, I wanted it to be too skippy. The sounds were too soft. It wasn't hard hitting enough. Yeah. Um, so when it came to work with these garage guys, they'd come in with their record box, be like, we, you know, going to have to make a record record at 130 bpm when i normally make them at 165 or <laughs> 170 um but i was there you know loving it in the studio so they come in with a, a load of records um and just to like play me all this stuff and we take samples start tunes basically with no sample libraries it'd be a blank sampler and a computer and a massive box of records they just sit there uh, playing all these tiny little loops little vocal acapellas I'd be like nicking little pads from places looping around to little things take a brand new snare rim hats uh, kicks basses everything from this guy's you know record box uh, and then knock it all together and make a record out of that but listening to what these guys were saying like no 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 it should you know it should be slower there or start with the drums and then drop out to this and let's have some mm. like pad thing and then we want to go duh, 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 to come back in <laughs> so I was just listening to what these guys were saying and slightly getting it slightly wrong I guess because I had no history I knew nothing about what this music should be like other than these little bits of records that I was hearing in the room um, so me and these guys started making making these records and, and they remind, were the, remind me who these guys were these were so this DJs was, on what station uh, London Underground okay. and this was VIP records right. so I did a whole series of VPs with different um, DJs so like Ramsey and Fenn Naughty Be Nice yeah. um, uh, Daryl B yep. uh, Daniel Ward and Hermit all these kind of guys yeah. that are on the station Greg Stainer all these people had shows right. they all came in did three track EPs okay. um, and so I think I probably did five or six six of those so mm. that was the beginning and that I remember you know be doing my own stuff at the same time at home um, and that's probably when I made Sincere was during that time in that studio I did that at home on my Atari with just an Akai sampler I've still got the dat somewhere at home of um, it's just coming out of the left output of the Akai sampler like no synths no mixing desk no nothing and the track's pretty much there and I mixed that overnight in, at that studio where I'd be making all these kind of garagey records. So I think Sincere was probably um, a bit of a 
mistake as well not mistake but it wasn't really anything it wasn't like didn't have all the hallmarks of a garage record necessarily <coughs> excuse me um it you know it was a, a little bit of an anomaly a little bit of a, a wild card and was that the first record that came out with your name on it as a, as an artist or were there what how much was there that was your that were mj cole records ahead of that um well the first bit of vinyl um that i ever have had an involvement with was um i basically knew uh matt quinn optical yes the drum and bass guy um and he was working from a studio at Great Asset, yep. which was the distribution company in Grazing mm. Road yep. behind this Raz little arch. And those guys, yeah. That's cool. He was working in a studio in there, and somehow I persuaded him to uh, let me come in one night and do a remix with him. And we did a remix of um, Intense. I think it was Babylon Time Warp. It was called. Mm. And so the first uh, vinyl release I had, it was me and Matt, mostly him, to be honest, because mm. he like knew exactly what he was doing. But it's a green label, um, and it says, uh, I think it's called The Little Matt's Remix, it says. But that would have been while I was at uni still. So right. that was probably like 94 uh-huh. or something like that. Uh-huh. That was the first bit of vinyl. But that was, that was a drum and bass remix. It was all breaks in like 170 yeah. BPM. Okay. Um so the first garage sort of releases I would have had would have been those VIP things, but that was in conjunction with DJs. And there were some, there were other people. But so was what there? About, a, yeah, was one, there one of that was yours, or, yeah. or was was sincere your actual first? Did you have a hit with your first release, with your proper first release? I think so, probably. Because um, that's phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it probably was like that. I probably made that record in like 96 at home in my bedroom and I remember going to um, a distributor with that record with my manager at the time on a cassette and playing it to them and they were like "Uh, it's not really this and then playing me some other stuff and saying no you need to go back and like you know make some stuff a bit more like this which was a bit mad it got knocked back yeah and I didn't really mind because I just thought it's just like another record it's quite a um, special record to me because I'd I'd made it without any any idea of what it should be. There were no preconceptions. There were no. There was no pressure. It was just like a tune that I knocked out in my bedroom, basically. Yeah, and UK Garage didn't exist at that point. No, probably not. Um, yeah, it was. So the VIP records thing was the first. That's really where I found myself. But I was doing other stuff at home, and then. Um, it kind of went from there. Some of these guys that I've been working with started getting offers to do remixes elsewhere and like going to different studios. So I spent a really fun time just going to all these sort of ramshackle. They weren't really studios. They were just rooms with like a couple of speakers, an Akai sampler, a few sound modules, a little Mackie desk, like no soundproofing, um, just like 
you know, rolling around on my scooter in London, going to work with these different DJs who were doing different um, remixes in different places. It, you know, it was a mad time. <laughs> it was just me on my scooter with a little box on the back. I remember having um, my floppy disks in there, and then that turned into I had a little blue zip drive in a tea cosy to keep it like um, <laughs> stop it bouncing up and down on <laughs> the back of my scooter. That's quite cool. Yeah, that was me, but that was sick for me because I, I'd spent my whole life. <laughs> playing piano going to like public school like learning about this and that and all I wanted to do was go to work with a box of discs yeah. and, and I was doing that I was going to work with a box of discs on a scooter quick question so in terms of Sincere itself what was tell us about the songwriting process did you come up with everything on that record or was it co-write yeah so Sincere is completely sample based it's um, I, I went to a load of vinyl picked out sounds all the drums uh individual things just taken from vinyl collections that i had i couldn't tell you what but just tiny little bits um and then the vocals were from a sample cd called killer vocals 2 and that it's just uh, a sample cd that had loads of like tiny phrases on it little individual words and i you know i i would i got very into sampling something i still do now i i, I, I love no didn't, didn't know that yeah yeah it's, so it's all tiny unrelated words from the course of a double cd <laughs> thing including the main hook yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just found them all as samples from this sample CD. <laughs> if you could see Nick's face. <laughs> wow. I could okay. make up some other stuff and say, that, no, no, it came to me on a beach in like blah, wow. blah, blah. Wow, okay. I yeah. never would have guessed that yeah. that, that, that was yeah, the case. I, I thought that would have been just, you know, you've got you've got this vocalist to come in. No, and she had written, moment of, you'd written the lyric. Had this and, moment no. of inspiration. It's and actually like, two different ladies singing. It's right. two different voices from word to word Nova Casper and JD are their names and they were um, they were part of this sample CD but also if you ever find the sample CD you'll see that, that all the words are completely unrelated so I've taken one word from right at the end of the CD on track 99 pitched it down two semitones to go with one of the other words so I just had a keyboard full of samples huh. go through it on the Akai had a little groove in the background and then tuned all the vocals Till they were kind of in the key. What an absolute revelation! <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm mind blown as well. But, yeah. <laughs> but you look like you've, <laughs> you've just yeah. seen the most shocking thing you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. All right. Well, let, let's remind ourselves of this because you know I wasn't I wasn't a big fan of UK Garage, but. But there was like two tunes which I still have and I carry with me, you know, well, I hardly DJ these days anymore. But there's, there was two tunes that I always had through my entire career, Sincere and uh, Wookiee. Um, and battle, battle. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those, those Wookie were, track, yeah. those were, you know, for me the absolute standout. But if I had to take one to a desert island and listen to it for the rest of my life, it would be yours. And I, I would, oh, of thanks, course, take the, the Nero remix of it as well, because then I got to enjoy it whole, uh, you know, again. Yeah, you me know, like too. Actually, yeah, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I used to well, play that uh, last track for, you know, a long time from the, you know, two thousand and nine onwards, probably for a couple of years. Yeah, it's good. Let us remind ourselves. Trailblazers, MJ Cole. Be sincere. I'm crazy. Don't do it. Be sincere. Be sincere. 
want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals Trailblazers. I've been thinking about this interview and about, you know, doing this with you. And um, when you have, like, heated debates with friends, with muso mates, and you talk about, oh, I think the best record in this genre is this, and the best record in that genre is that. And there's always heated debates and there's always arguments. But I think you're in this incredibly unique position where there would be the fewest arguments if you had to pinpoint what the greatest record of a genre is, I think that most people would go, Nick, do you, would you back me up on this? I think that most people would say, if you go, what's the best thing ever out of UK Garage? I reckon that eight out of ten people, this is based on no research, this is just a gut <laughs> feeling, that I reckon about eight out of ten people would go Sincere by MJ Cole. I think that depends on how, how clued up the people are. I think the, the more clued up people are going to say that and then if you're talking to the hairdresser in Rotherham she'll probably go Artful Dodger Rewind because it was a bigger hit I've been always very comfortable with the fact that 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 record never really smashed it super super hard it just it, it did something and those who knew exactly like what you're saying knew about it but it didn't kind of get rinsed it's still which is really nice because it, it just still um it just it, it's still kind of hovering there in in a sort of relatively cool way and really that's how the record was made as well it's a very you know sincere record it's it was made without any pretensions without any idea that i wanted to sell a certain amount of vinyls or be played here or anything like that so it's quite a special record for me and it's nice that it's just sat underneath the mainstream i I think it's almost a bit too good to be that and was a bit too good to be that real mainstream high street Smash, mm. you know, because I would say it's a it's a little more cerebral, almost for want of a better word, than maybe you know Sambuca or Rewind or some and, of these records. That and were- timeless. I, I think that you know, if you if you look at those, you know, DJ Luckett or whatever, like those those records, they were like they they really sound like the time they are of a time whereas and and I don't hear them and I certainly I haven't played them since uh, but like but I'll always <laughs> go, go to back a zinc, like go and, to a uh, DJ EZ set <laughs> yeah yeah might, yeah, might, yeah, yeah absolutely he, he, he can get away with playing anything yeah, so whatever yeah. he plays he smashes it it's just yeah he's yeah amazing. but I mean I could be I could be supporting the prodigy and drop sincere and the crowd would go wild you know it's just one of those it's it's timeless it's just it's one of those it, like you said you made it it wasn't a UK Garage record because UK Garage didn't exist when you made it. It was just a, it was just a really honest production that I, you made. I, I want to chime in here because you, you said how people kind of knocked it back originally. You played it to maybe some labels, I'm guessing, or some distributors, and they were like, eh, it's not really. Yeah. And, of course, there's a common theme there, really, that we encounter through through this trailbla- series of Trailblazers and just and I've encountered over the years as well. Some of these really important big records do get exactly that response and it's it's why it's important that music makers if they get a bit of a knockback 
from certain people about their music, it doesn't mm. mean that you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So if there are music makers listening who are making music and they're putting it out or they're playing it to certain managers or labels and the, the labels and managers are going, no, nah, no, nah, not for us, doesn't actually mean that you're making the wrong stuff. Sometimes you're a little mm. bit ahead of your time. And there's, there's, there's loads of examples. I mean, on a track-based uh, sort of example, I remember DJ Jean, the launch, don't know whether you guys remember that record, but it went on to be a number one or two, absolute smash kind of commercial dance record. When that first came in on import from Belgium or Holland, one of those two, I remember that, that you know, 200 copies came in or whatever, and they ended up sort of returning about 120 of them back to the the Dutch or Belgian label going, people just ain't feeling it, it's not happening, we can't shift it, have them back. About five months later, it was top three. Right, yeah, but in this case, it was five years. <laughs> that sat on your hard drive for five, for four or five years? No, no, it didn't, because it first came out in 97. Oh, OK. Yeah, so it first years, came out yeah. in 97. No, I reckon it was... Um, it wasn't sitting around that long. I think it, no, it, it probably six months or something like okay. that from when I made it. Yeah. And, okay. and who, who signed it and put it out then? So this is an interesting story as well. So the, the original person to pick it up was Arthur from um, Vinyl Distribution in Reading. And those guys were uh, the main distributors for the whole drum and bass thing. Like all metal heads were going through there. All the big drum and bass people, they were shifting like these 10, 20, 30,000 units of vinyl. Uh, but, um, he heard it somehow and he started a new label called Metrics Recordings and it was the first release on Metrics. So um, it was Arthur really who fir- whose ears first found that record. And then from there, um, I think Pete Tong found it and uh, made it its essential new tune. I think three weeks running or something like that. I didn't even know who Pete Tong was or, <laughs> or um, what the essential new tune was. Um, <clears throat> so that happened. And then after that, uh, Simon Dunmore and, and Janet at AMPM, yeah. as it was then, yes. in New Kings Road, yes. um, they, they uh, picked it up. Yeah. yeah. What, and what then year? it went on to Talking Loud after that, and that's where I did the album. What year was it signed to by Simon Dunmore at AMPM? Simon Dunmore, who, ne- who now runs Defected, Defected yeah. Glitterbox, etc. Yeah, that, I, I guess 98 or yeah. 7 or 8, something like that. It, yeah. was re- it was released from Talking Loud when I was doing my album in 2000. So it was released before, it went to number 38, I think. Right. Maybe through AMPM, I can't remember, and then it got re-released a couple of years later when I was doing the album. Mm. I know it went I, to number 10 or something. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I don't remember us being... We weren't across that for, for Positiva as far as I can remember. So I'd have been running Positiva at the time and yeah. having lots of hits, but... Uh, I don't know, that kind of passed us by, actually, mm. but there you go. I remember the freestylers dropping it in, in about 98. Yeah. Right. Um, but so your your life must have changed quite dramatically at that point or what, what what kind of effect did that having you know have have on your life um well i was having a really nice time like it's you know if you go back to there's me and my scooter i've got my box of discs on the back tea cozy yeah tea cozy all around the, the zip drive <laughs> i had this black all-in-one like waterproof thing uh, this like 
black showy helmet. I remember having like one <laughs> of the trousers or not? No, because <laughs> no, you clear of that. synthetic. Yeah, yeah, this, of the, yeah. It's, it's sounding very people do yeah, nothing. People. Yeah, <laughs> you must have, you must have laughed when you saw that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I you know that kind of that stuff started happening. So I was doing then suddenly I was doing less engineering for other people. Um, and people interested in putting out my stuff. So I was making more records at home and then I got studio space in Soho Square. Avex used to be there. Yeah. And they oh, had yeah. a studio there and they were moving from Soho Square. I started SSL engineering in that. I got really good at engineering. I mean, I was destined before this happened to be a pretty good engineer. I was kind of doing big sessions on SSLs and going around studios around, the, you know, London, uh, recording it like Battery and Conk and Matrix and uh, Townhouse and all these things, doing big sessions like drums mm. and mixing things. Mm. Um, and so I, I'd stopped doing that and I, I, I was making more and more of my own music. I got a studio space um, in Tottenham Court Road and then, yeah, it all snowballed really from there. So people started just ringing me a lot, asking me to make records I did loads of great remixes. Yes, um, tell us about some of your remixes. Maybe we'll maybe we can even play some yeah. of your remix next. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, going back to sincere that that and saying that was very sample based. I've always been very interested in making a sound palette from samples. Like everything I do, even to this day, not all the time, but uh, the best way I can get. Um, something new to put a flip on something is to spread it out over the keyboard over individual samples if I've got sounds even you know things I'm doing at the moment it might just be piano that I've recorded I'll f reverse it put it up an octave chop it into bits and put it all over the piano all over the keyboard and uh, um, play it in different ways and that that's always been um, my way of kind of doing things and really that was uh, you know the way Sincere was made. So for me, remixing is a set piece and it's putting a flip on something in an interesting way. So I, I love it. Um, I love working with other people and, and writing songs and for producing with other people and doing these bigger sessions that I'm doing now. But I still love to go back to the set piece of the remix. And in those days, it was, you know, OK, here's the raw materials, right? You just by yourself, you just go in and do your thing. So I'd spend a whole day just flipping stuff around, uh, messing around with samples. So that, that became um, a big love of mine in those days, doing remixing. Um, and I did I did some really, you know, good ones at the beginning. I must have done hundreds of remixes now throughout my career. I mean, I've lost track. People keep, like, tweeting me, like, oh, have you heard this? Da, 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 da. And I, I'd forgotten I'd done it, you know. I have it somewhere. <laughs> I don't remember it instantly when I hear it, but... Um, I did some really good ones. Um, I was doing, I remember going to um, Vince's house from Dries of Bone yeah. up in Hampstead and I mm. remixed Real Love yes. um, in his little bedroom studio. Um, and I was doing loads of other things with DJs. And then I did, um, I remember in it was still the scooter days doing. Um, uh, Goldie's um, Believe. Mm, that's a uh, good with, one, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, and I remember mixing that. I mixed that in the SSL studio in Soho Square in the mm. Avex studios. I used mm. to, to rent that one out. Um, but yeah, the, the, back from those times, there'll be loads of remixes. I've kept that up really over the years. Um, I think it's maybe sometimes I should do fewer remixes, but I just, I get tempted. I like, I, I, I like it. it. It's, it's, uh, it off it. it's an art for me and it's a very specific, form and it's a set piece and I it's kind of like when I was playing the piano you get studies which um, just work your fingers out in a particular way and it becomes like doing a training session and remixes are a bit like that sometimes they flow and it just comes and sometimes they're literally the hardest thing ever I try them 12 different ways or the vocal doesn't fit or you know it's the wrong tempo and I think I can get away with doubling the vocal and it doesn't or you know so so they can be I love them and hate them but um Let, yeah. let's let's should we hit should we listen to the Goldie yeah listen remakes? to the Goldie ones that was interesting an excellent it had exam, of, really. of great sounds in it and um, yeah yeah let's stick that on Trailblazers MJ Cole of Goldie one of hundreds as you say uh, and and you've, you've shared with us how much you loved doing remixes but how did your original tunes develop you know how did that uh, did the remixing affect how you made records for yourself um, yeah I think when I was making um, certainly when I was doing my first album everyone my manager and everyone was like let's re- stop doing remixes I kept getting um, tempted you know to go and do remixes when I was in the middle of trying to you know record an album but um, yeah I mean the, the the first album called Sincere as well came about and um, because Giles Peterson and Paul Martin at um, um, Talking Loud you know they signed it so I had to do an album <laughs> so, so um, and I got some money um so yeah i kind of started getting into that and and that was a huge collection of original tunes and uh you know i've i've, I've continued that up until you know today i had i started my label that was called prolific recordings in 97 actually so that, that actually that was a vehicle for my own original tracks yeah and i think um I can't even remember what the first really guilty and flavor fever was it that might have been the first or second one or talk box mm-hmm. um and I had a track called Your Mine with Guy Simone the the green one that uh I think it ended up being on the album in the end but that was my source of um original stuff I had prolific recordings running and then I got signed as MJ Cole so I couldn't release anything as MJ Cole that's where this box clever pseudonym came right. so I could continue re- releasing stuff on my label but not under my name that's because I was you know in an album deal with um, Talking Loud but my labels continued from there I, I started up prolific again after I'd done my two albums for Talking Loud um, in probably 2004 or 5 and we had a good little run there and um, Andy Lewis was running the label with me 
um, who I kind of knew from Locked On and Pure Groove and those kind of people. Um, and we had another little spurt then. I did things like um, Questions and there was a Tubby T tune that I did. Um, I mean, that's I had a club night that started then as well. We, we used to do a, a monthly Thursday at Plan B that's now Phonox in Brixton. It was mad oh, going yeah. back. I was back there last week to do um, Mike Skinner's After Party to DJ that and it's now Phonox <laughs> and they've moved the decks again. It's mad. They've got the deck. They've had the decks everywhere except for where they used to have them back in those days. But yeah, we used to do a monthly um, Thursday and then that moved to Herbal in Shoreditch that's mm. not there anymore either, I think. Um, so yeah, original recording-wise, uh, there's always been a vehicle for that. So I had the big albums out on Talking Loud and outside that it's been prolific recordings that's now become 892. I've got a question um, for you. When you started to get more public recognition, so around the, the phase of these couple of albums coming out, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but sort of Mobo Award Best Producer was that? Yeah, I got In that era? Yeah. And maybe like Mercury nominated? nation yeah yeah now did those kind of accolades affect you did they add more pressure on to you in terms of your music making or not really because you sometimes when people get more successful it, they kind of they can freeze a little bit in the headlights did you go through any of that or not or not really um no i think at the time um those things were cool it did. It, it did shoot up very quickly for mm. me, um, and suddenly, you know, I'm doing much bigger things and doing all these award shows. It was quite surreal, really. I still felt quite grounded in myself. Good. I still felt yeah. like Matt in his bedroom making records. Okay, I important don't think I ever... to important to retain that because you do sometimes speak to artists and then they, they move into this different realm. Like I said, I mean, anybody who's getting producer of the year or whatever at the Mobos, whatever you've got, you've got an air. You know, there's there's more expectation on your shoulders, isn't there, when you come mm. with a new record when it's funny yeah I don't think I really felt pressure from that but then I don't think I really felt like a real producer I was an artist I was a a guy who was making records in his bedroom I wasn't the producer that I'd seen at Abbey Road or at Air Lindhurst or Metropolis so you thought I'm not really that I'm not really that yeah I guess so I mean the definition of producer back in those days was really someone who makes dance music Mm. that that was a producer I mean to me a producer is someone who gets the best from an artist who pulls a whole session together who finds the best players, who finds the best mix, mix engineer, who yeah. drives round to the artist's house at night and, you know, mm. gets them to come to the studio that looks at things from afar. Like Rick Rubin, for example, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the moment, he's one of my kind of idols but he you know that's a record producer to me yeah um and then so i you know not to belittling or anything Mm. it was great but i don't i didn't suddenly feel like shit i'm you know i'm the number one uk record producer i'm going to be producing top 40 records for all Mm. these people because do you remember who else was in the in the frame for that best producer it was funny when you look at the lineup you it makes sense what i was saying because i think it was (laughs) just a load of garage bods it was like oxide neutrino artful dodger i thought i thought this was the one where dr dre was in the uh, he might have been actually i read some i read i read (laughs) yeah i I think he was but if you look at the nominees list (laughs) it's it's very funny it's like a load of garage guys 
yeah, and then Dr. Dre in like okay. proper, yeah, proper producers. Yeah, all um, right. So it's funny, anyway. yeah. After though, but you know, being a, I, I, I never really felt like a producer then, and I, I, I sort of felt like I should go off and become a producer, and I think I was a bit too green and a bit too, too young and inexperienced to actually be a real. Uh, producer I tried like producing a few records but I was kind of in my groove and I made records in a certain way and that was my language um so that didn't I had a bit of a lull after that like when I was at Talking Loud you know the whole garage thing fell off terribly mm. the same way that dubstep I've just seen dubstep it happened to dubstep you know yeah, like, I six, was, seven, eight years it ago it did I was right there managing Casper as it right. fell off a cliff and the same thing happened to garage in like 2003 I'd say it literally just fell off the um, face of the earth. Okay, so for you at that time, what, what was the impact then? You Gigs dried up, did they? Remixes went quiet? Yeah, I think it, I had a very fallow period. I mean, luckily I'd, you know, I'd done well during that period, so I'd kind of bought a flat and stuff, so I had a bit of breathing space, but yeah, certainly... Um, you know, the DJ fees probably quartered. People would be like, do you play R&B? That would be, can you play R&B? <laughs> so I remember going to DJ gigs. Wow. I remember trying to buy some R&B records to go was... and play it, you know, somewhere. And whereas, you know, during the UKG thing, the main room would be Garage and there'd be R&B in the, in the other room. They swapped over and suddenly R&B was massive. And this you was, were Relegated to the yeah, the I was back in the, room. the B room, yeah. Um, which I was kind of like cool with, but I, you know, in retrospect, I said this to my wife um, yesterday. Actually, if there was a time when I think I should have moved to another country gone to America or something for five years not necessarily to make it big at music but to have a change of scenery it should have been then mm. but I didn't okay. I just stayed in London mm-hmm. and kept grinding I still had the studio I got into I've started a band's project I suddenly thought I need to learn the guitar okay. uh, I was all over the shop but still you know um, making music so I don't think I really found focus uh, again for probably three four five Five years, really. Mm. But this is—it's not an unusual experience, though, uh, Eddie, is it? You know that that anybody who's had success across the years has also experienced those moments. We look—you know—you kind of gloss over it so, so again I'm going to refer back to Niall Rogers if you'll let me you know people think he's a legend of course you know incredible career all great right I mean you know it, disco fell off a cliff in the same way as dubstep and UKG and he had that period when where the phone didn't ring and they went from being the hottest guys everybody wanting to, them to produce their records or or what have you and then suddenly nothing and you know people wouldn't return his calls so it happens to the greatest the greatest of the greats, and it, and it happens all the way down. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's worth it's, noting. It's part of the yeah, game, really, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that and that has been the downfall of many a, uh, you know, great. You, you know, you get people often, you know, men succumbing. Uh, but, but, you know, we have we're in this business that uh, you have these incredible highs, but then you also have these incredible lows, and they don't teach you. They teach you about the highs, but they don't really teach you how to cope with the lows. And yeah. you know, we've all had <laughs> yeah. friends who and colleagues who have uh, taken their own lives, you know, and yeah. stuff like that. It's it's it can be a really, can be uh, really tough, tough thing. But um, but but pushing past that and looking at your uh, at your um, 
not your remixes, but your own original tunes. What is the tune that you would pick as the one that you're, with the benefit of hindsight now, uh, the most proud of, aside from Sincere? There's loads, but I'm looking back, I reckon, to my most recent output. So I'm thinking like the last couple of years um, since I, you know, started 892 recordings and I've had, you know, a new lease of life in a kind of fresh way. And I I think probably the record, you know, within the last couple of years that I'm most proud of is the one that I did with Bruno Major called Shelter um, on my label. Still a very under the radar, um record um but very textural he you know he's amazing we 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 made some really good stuff in the studio together um and this is kind of where my piano sound um really starts to creep in this piano that i've got in the studio and all these kind of textural sounds um uh so yeah that i'm pretty proud of that record yeah trailblazers question what are you working on at the moment matt what's coming in the future um so i have a record with Freya ridings that's out at the moment um, it's amazing oh, what a brilliant record that is yeah i posted that uh, last night actually oh, um and uh i'm a bit jet lagged at the moment a bit all over the place so it was oh. like half four in the morning and i was listening to it and i just thought wow how brilliant and i just posted it at that point needed oh, to share it. it's really good man oh, thank you it's yeah really good so that that's called waking up um and that's had uh that came out just at the beginning of this year but it's about to get another big push we've just I've had this video made by um, Phil Fury that's um, like one of the the best videos that I've had done for one of my bits of music it's not hey let's get a sports car and we're going to shoot in a club and that kind of thing it's like a really amazing video and it's um, it just really um, brings out the best in the music so I'm really excited for that to happen so that that's about to drop the video soon and that goes with another couple of tracks that I've done I'm basically basically I've been I've decided to make an album but I've split the album into four bits and I'm doing four lots of three track EPs okay. so I had a first three track EP that was out in about September called Foundations and this uh, Waking Up is part of the second EP, yep. which is called the Waking Up EP. So we've yep. had Foundations, Waking Up. Yep. If you look at the artwork, it's this tower block that's mm-hmm. kind of going upwards and mm-hmm. becoming more distorted. Mm-hmm. So there's a track called Mercy and there's a track called Serotonin that are mm-hmm. going to come out um, with this. And then other than that, I've got some really exciting things that are going on that I, I can't speak about. I've made a record with a very tall person. I've <laughs> made a, I'm making a big... Big mm. record with a lot of. Um, Hold on a minute, Stephen Merchant. Hold on. <laughs> that would be that would be unusual. Yeah. I can't say any more, but that's a good clue. And I, I'm making a very big, longer playing record with people who play. Uh, stringed instruments as well at the moment. <laughs> yeah, for someone. Okay. Uh, and I've been making music for people who play on 
games games as yeah. well actually and there you go and, and so there's going to be a little bit of a hiatus while this bigger record happens that I've just started working on mm. and then I'm going to continue with these uh, three track EP things after which which is sort of lined up already so it's pretty exciting I've got the framework there um, some bits have come in the middle but I'm um, basically um, living life and having like good fun great you know what I, I don't know whether we were going to do this but we must play the, the waking up record it's brilliant it deserves oh, it deserves every bit of exposure that it can get so let's let's play that now this is, uh, this is MJ Cole and Freya Ridings, right? That's it. Yeah. Waking up. Trailblazers. MJ Cole. When, you're, when the last thing you've made um, gets thumbs up from somebody like Nick Hawks, that's, uh, that's a very nice position to be in, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's you know? great. Yeah. Um, and, and let's face it, you're always going to be remixing because you're, all, you're in this beautiful position where every week there's going to be some A&R man somewhere going, let's get an MJ Cole remix. Uh-huh. You know, it's like you're, you're one of those guys. That's, it's, you're always going to get that kind of work, aren't you? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's great to be, to be known for that. Yeah, I, I love it. It's one of my favourite things. Yeah. So, um, well, all of which brings us to the the question that we always ask every uh, artist and uh, DJ and producer that we've had on Trailblazers, which is that uh, if you were in a position where there were aliens that had come down, and they are going to come one day, and they were and they are uh, like prospecting for this intergalactic superhighway or something like that, and 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 they are looking at which planets in this solar system to destroy and which ones to leave. Um, if they were thinking about destroying this planet, what is the tune that you would give them to stay their hand to to let them think actually this planet is worth saving? <laughs> well, I was I was thinking about the whole space thing um, and thinking about the moon and then. It's a pretty. I don't know if this is a great choice, really. Fat boy, he got the the uh, Norman Cook. He chose the best thing, right? The Bowie thing. But he was the number one guest on your first. It was well, early. You, well, you say that, but I. But in in my mind, um, it was Rodigan. Oh, it was actually Rodigan. He picked Bob Marley. Um, oh. One uh, love. One love. You know, because and and I just got the I just got the feeling that actually that it's got that universal thing. You know, Bob Marley. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. Because we're going off top, off topic, but on the BBC doing this thing about like trying to find the icon of the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. I've seen and, that. Yeah. And uh, in and in my mind, you know, if it was if it was like a British thing, I'd pick Bowie. But if it's in, if you go international or multi-planetary, I'd go Bob Marley because there are certain parts of the world where you drop a Bowie record and it just wouldn't work. But I don't think like you could be anywhere in the world at any time of day with anyone, drop a Bob Marley record, and they are going to feel good. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I just, it's a good one. I just got that. It, I just I felt as though when Rodders picked that tune, I just thought, wow, actually, this would this would actually save the world. My yeah. selector. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, get so, the air horn out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the aliens would bring air horns yeah. out. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So, well, let, let's let, let's you know yeah. what would so, what would your tune so, be? So I was thinking about the moon, and then I was obviously being you know relatively simple person. I just thought about the film 
the, the uh, moon mm. that, that has an amazing score actually by Clint Mansell yes uh, who's made some like amazing uh, film music and uh, one of the you know one of the parts of that music is called you know we're going home so I thought this would be a fitting thing it's like you play we're going home to the aliens and they might think yeah let's just um Let's go home. But I love this as a piece of music. It's got this major seventh like dissonance in it that um, on the piano. But I think um, this will send them home. Yeah, it's a very beautiful piece of music, mm-hmm. and it, and it, it kind of surprised me that you picked it, um, and pleasantly surprised me. I mean, Clint Mansell, what what I what a career! I mean, from pop will eat itself to that to this is that's quite a progression, and also it made me, when I listened to it, it made me feel emotional. And your production, the way that you're, the whole cut of your jib, Matt, is very emotional, isn't it? You you somehow, you're one of these producers that can give soul to something which is, as Mike Skinner says, just numbers in a machine. <laughs> Thank you. And and I thought that, that this was a very nice record to kind of reflect that. Yeah, yeah. Trailblazers. Originals. Trailblazers. Thank you so much for joining us, MJ Cole. Thanks so yeah. much, guys. Brilliant. Yeah, well, I was you, I was so buzzing to, to to do this, and I'm really glad that we've. Uh, I, I I think you are truly one of the one of the relatively unsung heroes <laughs> of of the game, and I'm so happy to to be able to kind of um, plant that flag and just go, yeah, everybody should listen to MJ Cole records. Thanks, dude. <laughs> Trailblazers, Deezer, Deezer. Originals. <laughs> 